China has emerged as one of the 21st century's most consequential nations, making it more important than ever to understand how the country is governed. I'm Jude Blanchett, the Freeman Chair in China Studies at CSIS, and this week I'm joined by Jerome Duayon, Departmental Lecturer in Contemporary Chinese Studies at the University of Oxford's School of Global Area Studies. Today we'll be discussing his recently published article, The Strength of a Weak Organization, The Communist Youth League as a Path to Power. Jerome, thanks for joining us. Hi, Jude. Thank you very much for having me, and it's a pleasure to talk about this research. One contextual question is, what the heck is the Communist Youth League? And I plead ignorance on this of really until I read your article, the first couple pages, did I think, oh, okay, that's what it is. So I wonder if you could just give us a, a brief organizational historical overview of what are the historical origins of the Communist Youth League and what were and are its primary functions? It's the CCP's main youth organization. It was actually created before the CCP was in 1920, but then basically after a sort of struggle for power, it became subsumed, it became sort of the affiliate of the CCP. And uh, in the official history now, the year of creation of the first Congress of the Youth League is 1922. So actually next year will be uh, the 100th anniversary because this year is the one of the of the CCP. So it's a massive organization with 80 7 million members, and basically the members' age group ranges from 14 to 28 years old. There's this idea of a, of a weak organization, and I think that's very much true when you focus on one main function of the Youth League that the party defines as being is assistant. And here I say weak because the idea is that you can find actually Youth League units at every echelon of the Chinese polity, so at the central level, provincial, and so on, in every unit where there are high number of young people in schools, universities, SOEs, and so on. But in all of these units, or at all these different levels, the youth league unit is always accountable to the relevant CCP unit. It basically has no autonomy. The CCP unit has the last word when it comes to approving the league's budget, selecting its leaders, sometimes giving it ideas in terms of what to do in terms of activities. As basically the, the CYL cadres put it themselves, the organization has no money and no power. So this is the youth league as the, the party assistant, basically recruiting a lot of young people and making sure that they are trained in ideology, organizing in schools, ideology trainings for young people, but also organizing basically a lot of extracurricular activities. In universities, for instance, the Youth League is in charge of supervising the student unions, and student unions are in charge of organizing basically all extracurricular activities. You can think of the you know, singing competitions, scientific competition, project competitions, and, and things like this. But what I'm interested in is actually the other side of the Youth League, which the party defines as its reserve force. And that's where I think uh, it becomes more interesting. And that's basically the, the recruitment role of the Youth League. So not only organizing activities to sort of keep young people occupied, but also it serves on the one side as a pre-screening process for CCP membership especially since the 1980s, as basically everybody under 28 years old wants to join the party, must first be a Youth League member and be recommended by Youth League cadres. 
So you have to become a youth league members. You become then a CCP member. So there's a sort of screening process and the youth league is important there. And probably most importantly, and that's actually what uh, my research has focused on, it's a training ground for party state leadership. So the people who become youth league officials or cadres, so not the mayor members, not the 87 million members I mentioned who basically don't do much, but the ones who actually work for the organization. So it could be college students working voluntarily for the organization, or it could be young graduates actually employed by the youth league. So the ones actually organizing the activities are often in a very good position to be quickly promoted to actually quite high level position within the party state. So it's this sort of fast track. How did you become interested in the Communist Youth League and what were the, you know, the key intellectual puzzles that were stimulating enough that you decided to spend years studying this organization? The Youth League was when I was, uh, I mean, before the PhD kind of, you know, doing my master's studies on, on Chinese politics, one of these kind of big mysterious organizations you always hear about studying Chinese politics, but rarely see anything written about, at least in the post-reform era, I would say. It's a bit like the, I mean, from my perspective, something else I'm interested in, the United Front Work Department. Until recently, we never really heard anything about, you know, what it's doing. And for me, the Youth League is sort of something like this. We know it's there. We know it's supposed to be important, but we don't really know what it's doing. And so I, I got interested in it. And my first sort of interest was uh, linked to two, two things. One, there's this sort of paradox when looking into the Youth League. On one hand, it's sort of, so it's the CCP's men youth organization, but it's largely presented as a, as a weak organization, sort of a remnant of a Maoist past that's not really able to attract young people and to keep in, in touch with their needs. And this, despite the fact that, you know, it's one of the largest political organizations in the world with around 87 million members. So it's this, it has this image of a weak organization. And at the same time, it's presented as a, the cradle of one of the most powerful factions within the CCP. And when I started my PhD, so during the Hu Jintao era, it was presented as actually the main uh, faction in the system linked to Hu Jintao himself and to Li Keqiang afterwards. Both of them were at uh, different point in times uh, leaders of the organization. And now the idea would be that this faction has been targeted and weakened under Xi Jinping. So I mean, I was interested in, in this paradox. And in trying to understand why, despite its apparent weakness, you still had so many basically young people still joining the league and still using it as a sort of springboard towards joining the party or towards a career in the party state administration, actually, for some of them. If I can just ask a methodological question, we were talking before I, we hit record on doing field work in China. I'm curious, you and, and you included in the the article we're going to talk today, um, source interviews. I'm curious on your perspective on the ability to do, could you do the dissertation today in terms of getting access to folks in the field who'd be willing to talk about political structures like, like the Communist Youth League? Is that area of study still open or are we seeing some of that close with the political tightening in China? I think it's still possible. So actually, most of my fieldwork was during the the first term of, of Xi Jinping, so between 2012-13 and up until 2015. So it was already tightening in a way. 
And I think, I mean, it was possible because it's the youth league. So it's sort of, um, it's not the, you know, the core of the CCP elites. Those are still young people. My interviews were with, so youth league officials in campuses, in universities, also at the local level, um, could be a provincial level youth league committee and some of them at the, at the central level. So basically I would say the more, the higher you go in the hierarchy, but that's like anything. Uh, or anywhere else, the more difficult it becomes. So when it it was to the the point was to get interviews with central level officials, that was much more difficult. But you know, through connections, being basically introduced to cadres, or and then the cadres themselves basically introducing me to another, so sort of snowball effect. It was possible to do it, and I think it still is. I would say on these topics. I'm trying to start a new project, for instance, on officials with ethnic minority background. And this is much more difficult, um, much more sensitive. Before we get to the meat of the argument in the article, and you've, you've already laid out some of the main thesis on, you know, as the title of the article says, the, the strength of a weak organization. I wanted to ask a few contextual or level setting questions. One is about the idea of, of a faction or factions. I suspect most of us who have heard of the Communist Youth League, who, who are not subject matter experts like yourself, know it in the context of a discussion of, of factions, you know, the so-called, you know, Twampai. I wanted to ask a question about where the state of the field is on just the idea of a faction. Is that still a, a useful heuristic or, or a concept to use when thinking about Chinese politics? And I guess related to that, just briefly, how, how is the the China studies field evolving or the authoritarian politics field evolving and how they think about the factions in, in China? So on factions, I think there are sort of two competing definitions which are actually rarely clarified that you can find in the literature. One of them is sort of um, the idea that within the CCP, you would have these two, three, four overall cohesive structured faction, and that will be the Tuanpai, for instance, or the Youth League faction. The princelings, uh, children and offsprings of high-level leaders from the Mao era, maybe the Shanghai faction, and so on. So this is one definition, one the sort of restrictive one that you know Cheng Li, for instance, at Brookings uses quite a lot. And then you have another definition which is, I think, much more flexible and basic. It's sort of the Andrew Nathan definition of faction, I would say, in a kind of a seminar article from the seventies, thinking about faction just as informal networks basically clientelistic relationships, but that doesn't necessarily translate into an overall cohesive networks that have shared interest, but could be just, you know, different smaller factions kind of spaced out throughout the system. In my own work, I don't use the word faction because I think now for most people, it has become this sort of idea of a cohesive overall network with shared interest. And I tend to think about rather uh, informal ties between officials and through actually the case study of the Youth League in this article, I'm trying to show that factional politics is much more complex and decentralized than is often presented in the, in the literature. And that we can't only focus on, you know, these sort of two, three big groups that actually, uh, I think the mere existence of this group can be discussed, can be questioned. And we often read that, you know, under Xi Jinping, these groups have lost a lot of their power, which is probably true, but I think that more broadly, with Xi Jinping's rise, this rise has shown that the cohesiveness of these groups has been sort of overestimated all along. 
And when you look at the trajectory of young officials, um, what I did in my dissertation, starting from sort of their initial political experiences in youth organization, you realize that for the ones that become officials in the party state afterwards, every cadre, every one of them is sort of embedded in a multiplicity of allegiance and ties with their direct superiors, with their former bosses, with the people they work with while working in the youth league, for instance. And this network sort of accumulates as the officials regularly also rotate across position because we know that Chinese officials tend to rotate a lot. And basically, the network kind of become more and more diverse. And I think that the more diverse the network becomes for these individual officials, the more difficult it becomes to organize in those sort of overall cohesive groups that you know are sometimes defined as faction. I mean, I really appreciate that that final explanation on the multiplicity of groupings, because I always try to deorientalize Chinese politics by thinking about comparisons that I know better. And, and just as you were talking, I was thinking about what faction do I belong to? Because I now think of kind of three primary networks or factions that I belong to. One is when I was out at UCSD, you know, working under Susan Shirk. I very much think of myself as still belonging to the USD faction, UCSD faction. When I was at the conference board in Beijing, I feel like I have a strong DNA tie to the conference board faction. And now, of course, I'm at CSIS. And so as you were thinking, I was saying, of course, that makes sense that an official would have many identities or many groupings, some of which overlap, some of which don't, which they can draw on as they move their career and it, it kind of snowballs in terms of identities, that makes sense. And so that, that shows you're right, a limitation of saying, you know, Jerome is a member of the Oxford faction solely, because of course, I'm sure you have a number of, of sort of groupings that you are still tied to. Can you unpack that fast track component of the Youth League? Is that a inherent feature in the system or were there historical or political contingencies which saw it move into that as a groomer of leadership. But as you say, critically, not necessarily by just being a, a card-carrying member, but sort of positioning people in Communist Youth League leadership as a breeding ground for future leaders. It's always been an important sort of grooming ground for CCP leaders. If you look at Central Committee members of the CCP since the 1920s, around a third of them actually have an experience as a youth league official. So it's always been sort of an important grooming ground, which makes sense. I mean, you're the youth organization of a political party. It makes sense that a lot of these kind of leaders of the youth organization becomes uh, party leaders. But it has changed since the 1980s. And with Deng Xiaoping sort of pushed to rejuvenate the party, the youth league has become much more important due to a variety of institutional changes but an important one is basically, and this is often overlooked, by the party state has very strict age rules. That means that at each level of the hierarchy, you need to be below a certain age in order to be promoted to that specific level. So as a city mayor, as a provincial governor, and so on. And therefore, there is quite high level of turnover, and you need to be promoted quite quickly in order to rise the rank and get to that specific position early enough. And the Youth League has been very important in order to fast-track people in these sort of mid-level local leadership position. And then from there, they can reach the top of the hierarchy. I wanted to bring the discussion up to the Xi Jinping 
administration, which starts in, in late 2012. But just on the eve of that, I wonder if we can set the scene by, can you describe where the, the Communist Youth League was as an organization in terms of influence, authority, power in, let's say, just, you know, just on the eve of, of Xi Jinping taking the reins? Of course, one of the most famous, quote unquote, members of the Tuampai at that point was the, the outgoing general secretary, Hu Jintao. I'd have to go back, but my memory is a lot of the media framing of this handover in leadership was talking about the, you know, the importance and relevance of, of the Tuan Pai and the Youth League as an important political actor or faction in, in Chinese politics. So where were we in, in 2012 when Xi Jinping took power? How, how influential was it as an organization? There have been sort of two golden era of the Youth League, one in the 1980s and the who was also a former leader of the organization. And in the 1980s, he sort of brought to the top of the CCP uh, leadership a number of uh, former youth league officials. So at that point, we see a lot of these youth league affiliates rising in the ranks. And we have a similar phenomenon under Hu Jintao. So when you look at sort of top CCP officials, you see a lot of people, Li Keqiang being a good example, Lin Jiehua and others, who were at different points in time youth league leaders. And that's the origin of this idea of a, of a Tuan Pai, of a, of a youth league faction. What I'm trying to show in this article is that, yes, when you look at a few individuals, indeed, you can see that, you know, some sort of youth league affiliates have become particularly important at these two points in time. But that overall, since the 80s, the youth league had continuously been an important promotion channel for youth league officials. So it's not only under Hu Jintao, but at that, at that point in time, probably it was a sort of yeah golden era for former youth league officials. A lot of young officials were taking this route in order to be promoted quickly to local uh, leadership positions. And morale was high, I would say, for youth, youth league officials. That's a, that's a great segue, because I think we're going to end our conversation today talking about morale being lower in the Xi Jinping era. So let's delve into this. I think there's a theme throughout all the podcasts I've done of really understanding or trying to understand what's different now in the Xi era, where, where it does seem we're seeing fundamental shifts and breaks with a lot of the political norms, institutional arrangements, you know, kind of political agreements and arrangements which had held for a very long time. You write in the section of the paper, which, which transitions to talking about the China Youth League or the Communist Youth League under Xi Jinping, you write, being dependent on the party leadership of the Communist Youth League's status as a path to power is precarious. What happened in the Xi era? I'd like to ask you to dig into some of the kind of specifics of how Xi looked to constrict or compress the space for the Communist Youth League. I guess as a, a first kind of question is, how did she view the Communist Youth League? And how does that help explain some of the subsequent actions that, that his administration took? So, I mean, of course, here we are sort of speculating, but uh, based on his writings or the talks he gave about youth or the Youth League, generally his view was quite negative. He talks about an empty shell, talking about Youth League units at the local level. He talks about young people singing empty slogans. So it's, I think his view is that it has become a sort of aristocratic, or it, it had become at that point, a sort of aristocratic 
organization where a lot of, you know, sort of young officials will use it in order to advance their career, but didn't really care about the thick of it, about the ideology behind it. And, and that's very much in line with his discourse on the, on the party, I would say, more broadly. So there's been an effort under Xi Jinping to sort of strengthen the activities of the youth league at the very grassroots level. So this sort of ideological education campaigns, also activities of the youth league online and the propaganda efforts have very much been strengthened under Xi Jinping. At the same time, the function it played since the 80s as sort of fast track to top positions within the party, this has definitely weakened. And a number of uh, moves undertaken by the C administration have weakened it. One is that uh, at the central level or provincial level, the youth league has less position, which therefore less people can use it as a sort of fast track to, to top position in the party state. Budget at the central level has been uh, cut in half uh, in 2015. So you, you see a lot of moves going in the direction of, of weakening basically the, the central and provincial youth league apparatus. I mean, the, the question here, I guess, is, and what a lot of people have been asking is, to what extent is it related to factional politics? And that comes back to the, the Tuan Pai discussion we, we were just having. So some people see it as basically an attack targeting the Tuan Pai and targeting former party secretary Hu Jintao and the current premier Li Keqiang in order to sort of weaken this faction, the Tuan Pai, that will be a sort of counterpower check on, uh, on Xi Jinping's power. That may be partially true. I personally think that it's part of a more sort of systematic effort to curtail a lot of the avenues that helped young officials to be promoted f faster into the party. And the idea is to sort of limit the promotion of inexperienced officials. So there's a, a, a sort of official discourse about this, saying that because too many young officials are promoted with uh, not enough grassroots experience, then we have officials who are too aristocratic, too technocratic, and don't know much about the reality of the country. And also, it was often used, the youth league, by a number of local CCP leaders, so that's sort of decentralized clientelistic system I was talking about earlier, in order to promote their own affiliates. So not, not necessarily as an overall faction with you know, shared interests or common goals, but just, oh, I control the local Communist Youth League, I'm the local CCP secretary, I'll use it in order to promote my affiliates. And I think that was seen as Jinping as sort of limit on his, on his own power and, you know, potential competition, basically. So what's interesting is that Jinping has definitely targeted the Youth League and weakened its role in promoting young officials, but other mechanisms that fulfilled a, a similar role I'm thinking about the open selection mechanisms, for instance, which were mechanisms that basically allowed the sort of fast promotion of uh, young officials within the party, also have been constrained since uh, especially 2014. So it's sort of a novel attempt to uh, limit turnover within the party. Maybe summarizing it a, a different way, as, as I hear you talking again in reading the last section of, of your paper, it's been difficult for us external observers, I think, to oftentimes distinguish between efforts Xi Jinping is leading to restructure the governance and bureaucratic system and efforts that are about personal political power. 
oftentimes the two in terms of the outcome overlap. And so you could look at, for example, the anti-corruption campaign a number of different ways. Uh, there's a very strong argument to be made that, of course, the element of selectivity in terms of who he goes after is because this is about essentially solidifying you know, personal political control by sidelining or marginalizing allies. But indeed, there's a very good argument to be made that this is just a core visceral concern of Xi Jinping's about the quality of governance and the quality of cadres. If you look at campaigns right now to, quote, purify the membership by, you know, shrinking the, the net growth rate in new party members, you know, upgrading entrance requirements, you know, more open declarations of the, you know, the two safeguards, the Liang Hu, that this is about Xi Jinping's personal power. But again, I think there's a, in its own way, this is a, this is easily could be explained by she has this overall project of restructuring, reforming, revitalizing, rejuvenating the governance systems. And so as I was reading your section on page 17 here about the problems with the open selection mechanism, it made sense to me that this fits into an overall project of she comes into power. And I think he indeed spends, you know, gets right to it in early 2013 by saying, look, the party's got some significant structural problems and we're going to start systematically attacking these. But let me then turn to the final really important element of this story, which is, and indeed it follows on quite nicely and importantly from what you were just talking about, which is I can understand the logic of attacking problems within the governance system. And again, let's just take this open selection mechanism. So you know, it's created to bring more new blood into the system, but it's abused. You know, lower level officials use this to fast track, you know, would-be sycophants and loyalists. So it's it's having unintended consequences. But zooming out, you describe some knock-on effects here, which have significant, I think, implications for morale. You quote one of your, an interviewee who says, it is now very difficult to be promoted as a young official. Many people think about transferring to the private sector. Even me, I've been a CCP member since high school and a loyal Communist Youth League official, and now I'm leaving. So what are the implications or what are the effects of this campaign by Xi Jinping? Let's just start with the morale issue. How is this affecting cadres? And to sum up, I think it's, it's not a good time to be a young official right now in China. It's just... So you, you had these sort of institutional mechanisms since the 80s that have been quite unique to the Chinese party state and kind of given it the ability to renew its elites, which is very important in order to attract young people in the administration and also to avoid having a sort of aging elite completely disconnected from an evolving society. And I think by targeting, so for a variety of reasons, these promotion channels that allow this sort of turnover of political elite, Xi Jinping is basically creating a situation where we have an aging elite. I mean, basically, it runs the risk of becoming a gerontocracy. I think that's a big problem here. And one of the reasons for that is that, just like the young official, I quote it, I mean, you have people who have invested a lot in time and energy in building a, a, a career in the party state because they had this idea that through the youth league or through other sort of channels, they could obtain relatively quickly important, interesting, valuable positions within the party state. And when it becomes, when it's not possible anymore, 
they are disinterested and they they look for interesting opportunities elsewhere. So I think it's tricky for a party state that doesn't control, doesn't have the monopoly of social mobility to sort of remain attractive. And that was one way to remain attractive, to sort of give interesting positions to young people. So if you don't have that plus with the anti-corruption campaign, with the mass line campaigns, or with uh, various campaigns within the party uh, about rectification, about constraining rumors within the party and so on. Basically, you put a lot of pressure on officials and you don't promote them. This definitely has a negative impact on morale. And when it comes to the young officials, um, they may look for some something else to do. And, you know, it, those people I'm, I'm interviewing, they come from the best universities in the country. So for them, you know, they'll make more money if they go work for Alibaba, Tencent or other places than working for the CCP. So if they're not promoted, they might just do that. As so often is the case, I find a uh, apposite Deng Xiaoping quote to describe the scenario. In, in 1984, I forget the exact speech, but Deng gave this this long speech and you know, a quarter of the end of it is basically talking about the problem of, quote, older comrades and the idea that you had people who were installed in their positions and you couldn't shake them out. And he makes a very explicit point that we need to be moving people up and out if we're going to be getting young people in. And he said, young people is how we keep the system vibrant. We keep the vitality alive. So this is a, a longstanding problem. And indeed, I think as the, the core tension to me in the Xi Jinping era is, on the one hand, he's trying to modernize the governance system, but in the other hand, he's reintroducing many of the pathologies which have long plagued China's political system, and in many ways, unconsciously undoing the great Deng Xiaoping project of professionalizing, modernizing governance. And the, the outcome of this tension or the outcome of this process is, is yet to be seen. But what you've just described for me which I didn't know about till reading your paper, is a, is a really great specific instance of this tension playing out of, on the one hand, she's trying to take some actions to, to improve governance, but in doing so, he seems to be you know, returning the party to its natural center of gravity with some of these political problems. So I think that's a good note or a pessimistic note to, to end it on, but I just wanted to really thank you for taking the time. And again, the, the paper is The Strength of a Weak Organization, the Communist Youth League as a Path to Power in post-Mao China. It's really fantastic. I think this sort of granular research helping us to understand the exigencies and evolving realities of China's political system are, are going to become critical as we understand that what Xi Jinping does domestically has, has international impact. So Jerome, just really want to thank you for your time and, and for your research. Thank you very much. No, it's, it's really great to have the opportunity to talk about that. This is actually part of a larger book project, kind of following the different steps of, the, of these young officials within the youth organizations and just afterwards. So hopefully we'll have the chance to exchange more on these topics in the future. By the way, I should hasten to add that this appears in the China Quarterly. And if the capitalist overlords who run the China Quarterly are listening, the reason I don't subscribe is because you don't have an affordably priced individual subscription. And not all of us work at universities where we get access to journals for free. So I, I, um, I would beseech the China Quarterly to have a sub $100 individual subscription 
so that the uh, plebeians such as myself can afford to read uh, Jerome's great, great work. Otherwise, they will have to, like I did, find workarounds to illegally download uh, said articles. So I will end it with having just admitted a uh, admitted an IP theft, but uh, hopefully the, the powers that be can find ways to disseminate this, this knowledge uh, more affordably. So Jerome, thank you again for participation and look forward to reading your future work. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts. From Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 